Hello, hello. Welcome to episode seven of Words with Writers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Canadian Authors Association, Toronto Branch. We are a membership-based organization for writers in all levels, areas, and genres of the writing profession. We are your hosts, Chris Gorman and Brandy Tanner. Today, we'll be giving you a brief rundown of our Canadian Authors Toronto events for November and December. We'll talk about some upcoming contests that aspiring writers can submit their work to, as well as have Canadian Authors Association member Chadham Thomas join us to read from his new novel, A Light from Below. And as always, we're very excited to share our special guest interview. That sounds awesome, Brandy. I actually just got Chatham's new novel in the mail yesterday, which he doesn't know yet, so I'm going to surprise him today. <laughs> well, that's, he'll love that surprise. I think so, too. I've only read the first couple of pages because I'm trying hard to focus on National Novel Writing Month and use that creative energy to finish my second book. But so far, I'm hooked and super excited to hear him read to us. But just before we talk about the events, I think we have some super awesome news of our own, don't we, Brandy? That's right, Chris. With our October's Halloween Spooktacular, we not only passed 400 listens for the podcast, we're almost at 450 now. So a big thank you to our loyal listeners out there. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> And uh, every month we get exponentially more than the last. Thanks to all who are listening and all of our readers and special guests for helping us reach this milestone. And I can't tell you what it is, but we've got something special planned for our listeners when we reach 1,000 listens. So don't forget to like us on your favorite social media and share us with your friends. For sure. Oh, I can't wait. Well, our mission is to help bring new and emerging Canadian authors to readers as much as it is to be a resource of helpful information for Canadian authors. Every month, we hold a special event. Historically, these have been in person, but in this new world of quarantines and lockdowns, Canadian Authors Toronto has embraced the virtual world and opened our events up to anyone who's interested in writing. In the month of October, we held a Poetry and Ways of Seeing virtual workshop. This workshop was run by Arian Blackman, and it used the enigmatic and fascinating imagery of tarot cards to strip ourselves of our usual ways of being and seeing. Arianne guided participants to create poems by randomly selecting words that jumped out at us from an essay and combining that with the imagery of tarot. It was a truly fascinating way of exploring poetry. November has also been an exceptionally busy month for Canadian authors Toronto. Absolutely, Chris. We've had a lot going on. We celebrated Indie Author Day on November 7th with two events. We hosted a series of indie author readings featuring authors A.B. Neely, Gavin Barrett, Guglielmo Dizia, Ariane Blackman, Uta Soja, Michael Newman, and R.A. Morris. It was so amazing getting to listen to such a talented array of authors. It was definitely amazing, Brandy. There are so many truly amazing Canadian authors, and it's so important to support them, as much by buying their books 
as by attending events where they're featured. Our second Indie Author Day event was titled Journey on Becoming an Indie Author, which featured indie authors J.F. Garrard, Ed Seward, and myself, along with Iguana Books editor and Canadian Authors Association Toronto co-president Lee Parpart, speaking about the differences between traditional publishing and independent publishing, and why being an independent author is both hard work and supremely rewarding. A big thank you to all who attended those events. There's a third event for November coming up this week, actually. November, as any of you who are writers or know a writer will probably know, is National Novel Writing Month, or NaNoWriMo for short. It's a global challenge to writers around the world to write a 50,000 word novel in the 30 days of November. Chris and I are participating this month, and while we're both behind, we're hoping to turn that around with a series of events in the second half. One of these is being hosted by Canadian Authors Toronto. So join us for a public, informal NaNoWriMo write-in event on Thursday, November 26th. The event starts at 7, and you can stay for as much or as little as you like. Details and registration can be found on our website, canadianauthors.org slash Toronto. One of my favorite NaNoWriMo events, Brandy, was always the all-nighter. There's something super rewarding about gathering with a bunch of crazy, like-minded writers and writing until your bleary eyes see dawn. I'm sad we can't do that in person this year, but I'm having a great time participating in the virtual version. Our last event for 2020 is going to be December 10th from 7 to 9 and will be a virtual pub night. So grab your favorite drink and come gather in our Canadian Authors Toronto Zoom pub. It's a great opportunity to relax with other writers from across the city and the country and talk and brainstorm about all things writing. So Brandy, I think that about does it for our events. Would you like to introduce the contests? Oh, no, I think I did not. Absolutely. I'd love to, Chris. Our first contest is the Canadian Authors Association National Capital Writing Contest. Submissions can be short stories or poetry and must be received by November 30th. So you're almost out of time for this one. Prizes range from $100 to $300 and inclusion in a 2020 anthology. We also have three contests focused on student writers that I think it's important to talk about. There's the Polar Expressions Publishing National Poetry Contest, offering prizes up to $300 for students between kindergarten and grade 12. The Scholastic Art and Writing Awards for a variety of genres targeting students aged 13 and up. And finally, the Lives That Make a Difference essay contest for students in grades five to 12. This contest has a grand prize of $3,000 and students must submit an essay based on someone they think made the biggest impact on Canadian society in 2020. So if you know any budding writers in those age groups, please encourage them to submit their work. Links to all of these contests will be included in our show notes. 
There are so many writing contests this November and December, Chris, that it's impossible to talk about them all. But I did want to mention the Screencraft Cinematic Book Competition. This contest is for book manuscripts with cinematic adaptation potential, as well as graphic novels. First prize gets you $1,000 US, as well as introductions to Hollywood literary agents, managers, producers, and development executives. Oh, that's exciting. Books must be between 10,000 and 150,000 words and will be judged by a jury specializing in evaluating books for Hollywood. The deadline to submit is November 30th with winners announced on March 17th. Those sound like some amazing opportunities, Brandy, and several of them with deadlines that are just around the corner. So get writing. <laughs> uh, you were telling me about one other contest you were thinking about entering, weren't you? I was. I think about this one every year, so maybe this year will be the year. The Roswell Award for Short Science Fiction Writing Competition is the one that I want to enter. This contest is open to anyone around the world as long as you're over the age of 16, and it offers prizes of $100 to $500. Stories must be a maximum of 1,500 words and have a science fiction theme. What I love about this one, Chris, is that even though it's based in Los Angeles, it's organized by the Lightbringer Project, and their mission is to build community through the power of art and education and provide programs to underserved youth, which is something I think is so important. Absolutely. I think I'm going to try to enter that one. If I can manage not to max out my 1,500 <laughs> word count on the opening paragraph... <laughs> Uh, so I think that's it for contests and events. Now it's time for you to sit back with your favorite specialty coffee and settle into a nice warm blanket as we welcome our guests. Our first guest today is Chatham Thomas, who is joining us to read from his novel. Chatham is a Canadian author who self-published his debut novel, Light From Below, with the aid of Friesen Press on October 7, 2020. It is available for purchase through both Amazon and Friesen Press, and links for both are available on his website, chathamthomas.com, as well as posted in our show notes. <laughs> And Chatham is a new member to Canadian Authors Toronto, so we welcome him to the association. Welcome, thank you very much. Hi, thank you. <laughs> thank you for coming to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I have to tell you a little bit of a secret. Uh, you and I actually connected through Instagram back in early September. Uh, when one of your posts made it into my feed somehow. And I loved the sound of your book so much that I'm actually holding it in my hands right now. Hey! <laughs> Woo! Right. <laughs> uh, and I'm happy to say it only took about a week for shipping, uh, even with the pandemic delays. So, nice. That's yeah. good. Yeah, it's very good to hear. 
Well, Chatham, before we start, can you give our listeners a little bit of an overview of the book as well as the piece you'll be reading? Sure. So A Light from Below is a fantasy novel. It tends to focus on a trio of mercenaries who are trying to help an old colleague of theirs. Uh, It progresses to the point where they are trying to stop an invasion. And all the while, they're facing really difficult questions about themselves and trying to learn more about who they are and where they fit into the world. When they start to learn more about the invasion, they realize that there are a lot of uh, dark origins to it. And as things start to get more difficult there, the questions that they have to face about themselves continue to follow the same path and become darker and more difficult for them to face. So it's a a very parallel of a larger scale story intermixed with these characters who are trying to learn about themselves and it, it really overlaps there, which is nice. That sounds awesome. I'll also mention that the section that I'm reading is the beginning of the twist that is explained on the back of the book. So it's a bit of a twist, but at the same time, it's not a twist that you're not expecting. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to reveal anything that would make people feel like they've had something ruined for them. Okay. I'll start right in. The docks overflowing with people minutes before were empty. Streamers floated in the wind, abandoned by scared children amidst the chaos. The sound of the stormane's footfalls drew cautious sailors out of their ships to see if help had finally arrived. Though most of the people seemed to have escaped unscathed, the mercenaries passed the bodies of a few unlucky souls who looked to have been trampled by the fleeing mob. We must have been the only ones attacked, Al thought. That's a blessing at least. Even one of those things loose in that crowd would have been a massacre. As they continued towards Vuren's office, the streets in the lower part of the city were empty, not just the docks. The people of Malden didn't know how to defend themselves, so it seemed their substitute was to run and hide. They may not have been the target of the attack, but for people who likely had never held a sword or drawn a bow, that didn't mean a lot. They arrived at the office to find the entry shut and not a soul in sight. Throwing open the large wooden double doors, Ryan led the way into the building, calling out to Avurin with each step. The entryway was silent. Across from the door, Tala's desk was an unorganized mess, completely different from the compulsive order that was so apparent when they left. Her chair lay broken in the corner of the room, like it had been smashed against the wall. The outer ring of a small pool of blood was visible on the floor, peeking out from behind the desk. Following that blood, Al found Tala's body sprawled on the floor, her throat slit so deeply that her head was barely attached. Her hand was clutching a letter opener like a dagger. The last instinct of the living is self-preservation, no matter what life they may have built for themselves. Suddenly from above came the sound of a struggle, metal clashing and heavy footsteps shuffling, then a loud thump, followed by silence. Rushing up the stairs, Al led the way through the door into Avorin's office. The large man spun around to face them, brandishing a blade that dripped with blood, a wild look in his eyes. On the floor behind him was one of the creatures, a hole in its chest where Avorin had stabbed it. Slumped over his desk was another, its head twisted at an unnatural angle. 
Seeing his friends at the door and not additional enemies, Avorin lowered his weapon, but the wild look on his face remained. He had just killed two of the creatures that he had spent ten years trying to convince his son were not real. The weapon in his hand appeared to be one of their strangely designed swords. The blade was only sharp on one side, with two slight bumps along the back. Designs were etched into the flat of it, similar in style to the creature's tattoos. Monsters are real, Avurin said, staring straight ahead, his eyes slightly gazed. Of course monsters are real, Ryan replied, taking Avurin by the shoulder and guiding the stunned lord into his chair. There are monsters all over this world. Yes, we may never have seen these ones before, and they may seem like they shouldn't exist. But I ask you, though, is that any worse than the monster we discover within a man who, after living a life of love and potential, slaughters his family? There are monsters within all of us, my friend. At least these ones we can kill. That's amazing. Awesome. Oh, I, I can't wait to find out what happens next. Now I really want to want you to keep reading. Yeah. I know. I'm so excited. I have it here to continue. <laughs> I thought it was a. I thought my wife suggested it, and I thought it was a really good place for it because it, it kind of it skips the introduction of the story, without having to kind of ruin things. Because on the back, like the whole point is that there's this invasion that comes out, and it's it's a lot more than they were expecting. And I find this part really explains that and shows you the direction the story's going without ruining anything in a significant way. There are a lot of twists and turns throughout the story and things build and build and build throughout. And so this really sets you up well for all of those future future turns. Awesome. Yeah. And it was a great way to end. I, I love the line, at least these ones we can kill. I know I thought too. that was a great last line. Thank you. Although I, I do wish that I could read all the dialogue in your voice, because you <laughs> <laughs> did really well with that. Thank you. Cool. Well, thank you very much for coming on today. Hopefully, we'll have you back. Yes, thank again. you for having me. Our special guests this month represent a type of fiction that we've yet to feature, but which quite a number of my friends love. In fact, it's occupying a growing spot on my shelves as well. Yes, Chris, today we're excited to chat with graphic novelists Daniel Reynolds and Oliver Ho about their recently released graphic novel, Genghis Khan. Of course, with 2020 being such an interesting year, they actually launched their novel virtually at the Word on the Street Festival, which is where we met. Insert air quotes here. <laughs> <laughs> Oliver Ho works as a writer and editor at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto. He has written and published more than a dozen books, including several for children with Sterling Publishing. His work has appeared in Carousal, Descent, the New Quarterly, and the Toronto Comics Anthology. He wrote and produced the comic book Seven Strange Stories and co-wrote and produced the graphic novel Genghis Khan with Daniel Reynolds. 
And Daniel Reynolds is a writer from Toronto. He is the manager of SB Nation's Raptors HQ and a film critic at Brief Take. His online work can also be found at Pop Matters, The Classical, Film School Rejects, and in Bright Wall Dark Room Magazine. His comic book writing includes the new graphic novel, Genghis Khan, co-written with Oliver Ho, Point Man, an all-NBA heist story, plus stories in the Toronto Comics Anthology, Volumes 1, 2, and 5, Strange Romance, Volumes 1 and 2, and Hogtown Horror. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks very much. Actually, I think I kind of want to check out Hogtown Horror. That kind of sounds nice. I know. As soon as I said the title, I wanted to (laughs) check that out, actually. (laughs) That was an anthology we did not too long ago. I had a short story that I wrote in it. And yeah, it was like Toronto-based horror stories trading off on, you know, uh, various bits of weird history or things like that in, in Toronto. It was kind of a cool little book. Yeah, sounds amazing. Yeah, that sounds right up my alley. I love horror, so. (laughs) (laughs) So we want to talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of writing and producing a graphic novel. Uh, But first, can you tell us a little bit about what Genghis Khan is about? Uh, And for our listeners out there, uh, Khan is spelled C-O-N, not K-A-H-N. I read the first 12 pages on your website, GengisComics.com, and you can color me intrigued. Well, I mean, as you can see on the website, the framing of the story is that uh, we center on a woman who is a con woman, a bit of a grifter, and she's been separated from her sister for a long time. But then she finds out about this with something that's happened to her and gets drawn into this large uh, intercontinental rally race where she has to sort of discover what happened to her sister and travel basically from London or from England to Mongolia uh, and basically on a mission of vengeance, for lack of a better word, uh, and uncovering this mystery while, you know, gangsters and other shifty characters are involved. Did I sum, did I sum it up okay, Oliver? Yeah, definitely. It, it's a, a bit of a crime drama, a bit of a family drama, a road race. It got inspired by a meeting Daniel and I just happened, just totally by chance met somebody who had actually competed in something called the Mongol Rally, which really is an existing road race from England to Mongolia. And as soon as he was not as cutthroat as our book, though, not as cutthroat as our book. No, no. As soon as he described it, I could sort of see like Daniel's eyes lit up and he kind of said this would be a great idea for a story. So we kind of took that and as a framework and turned it into an illegal underground race that involves crime lords from around the world financing these road race teams. And then uh, we added in this element of a con artist and her sister. There's family betrayals. And there's also elements of a bit of a surreal element because they're also dealing in some sense with their mixed race heritage. So we have ghosts of Mongol warriors and things like that. Yeah, we just we thought it'd be an interesting framework for a crime story, you know, and it appealed to both of us. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That sounds like an awesome basis for the the story. (laughs) Uh, For our listeners to get a taste of the style and feel of the comic, the first 12 pages are available for free on the GangusComics.com website, uh, which Chris and I both checked out and thought it looked amazing. And it's definitely worth checking out. So you've been working on this for quite a while, right? Um, Tell us a little bit about what it takes to write a graphic novel. So, uh, I mean... 
I'll start us off here. I, I think we, we came up with the original idea way back in 2013, and it took some time to write the script and get that portion of it done. And I think Oliver and I would, would, would write stuff, we would meet. We started with, with graphic novels and minor comics in mind. You're constantly thinking about, like you're writing your script and you're trying to think about where you want to go with it in terms of uh, the, the exposition and the dialogue, much like you would with any other piece of writing. But it's a cha- you're always constantly thinking about space. Uh, like, you know, if you're writing a screenplay, you're thinking about time. Uh, and in this case, you're thinking of space in terms of, you know, what you can get on a page, what kind of actions you're trying to capture. So you gradually have to sort of chisel down everything you write into that format, uh, which, which takes some time. And that's before you get to the next step, which is the art and everything else. So that's, that's part one. Yeah, for sure. I think in terms of what it takes, there's a, a few ways to look at it. There is the writing element and then there's the production element. And this being an independent comic, it really gives you a picture of the whole process from beginning to end, the creative yeah. side and the business side. On the creative side, I think D- Daniel and I both took writing classes with a local comic book kind of icon named Ty Templeton. He offers these comic book writing and drawing and producing classes. And one of the things that appealed to us was his ideas about story structure and his approach to story structure and writing stories for comics. So we thought, let's uh, let's try his approach. You know, we both took the same classes. We both had the same notes so we could speak the same language, you know, when we were talking about it. So we um, we really started with the story uh, focused on the structure. Then we, you know, broke it down by page, you know, and then when we went by page, then we broke it down by panel. Then we did like a little stick figure version, you know, of the comic for ourselves, all of that. And then after that, we started scripting. We broke it down that way so that we kind of did as much story refinement as we could before we even got to the actual scripting part of things. And uh, and like Daniel said, we would trade back and forth. Sometimes I would take a section, he would take another section, then we'd swap and we'd meet and we talk about what we wanted to keep, what we didn't want to keep, what we liked, what we mm-hmm. felt was missing. So it was, uh, it took just over a year, I think, back and forth, just to get to the stage of having a, a finished script, which we then circulated amongst some friends. And we also then did some more revisions after that. But then the business side of things took over and we were looking yeah. for artists, which also involved creating contracts for people and taking all of that very seriously. Daniel was excellent at finding great artists to work with. We had a a couple of false starts. We had one big false start with with one artist, which was nobody's fault, but it it meant that we kind of got about a quarter of the way in and then we had to start all over again, which was a drag. We also had to find a letterer and a a cover artist. Uh, Then there was the whole... The book designer as well, and actually figuring designer. out how to assemble the book, yeah. Yeah, book design, then the whole printing and production process and distribution. So from beginning to end, it's, you know, seven years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a very full picture of, it, you know, we're involved in every single aspect of, of producing the book. So it's, you, you guys did that, all that yourselves, right? Yeah, we were kind of determined from the beginning yeah. to do it independently. Uh, and just to see, just to, you know, we'd gotten all sort of worked up from taking these classes and we thought, let's actually do it. You know, like we talk and talk and talk about it in the class. Let's actually go and do it and, uh, and see was, what. 
That, that's what actually it's funny you mentioned that we, we were very much driven to do it and it, and there was i don't know if you guys saw on twitter there was a meme of how it started how it's yeah. going and people were posting <laughs> screenshots of, and I, I went back and found the email i had sent and that was like the headline it was like because i said i would like i i said i'd send you the story <laughs> the sort the story like draft like just the like a long email where it's like here's the idea and like here's where we start and then it became like can we actually finish something? Can we actually get, you know, and yeah. as Oliver mentioned, like it, the, we gradually built it out. It was 40 pages and 70 pages and a hundred pages. And then it was a process of getting an artist and, and just keep, you know, like uh, the artists in a lot of cases for indie comics, like they're doing their other things. They have other paying gigs, they have other stuff going on. So it's, you're constantly trying to keep on that. And it's just like, ironically, because the book is about a race, there was this kind of finish line that we were <laughs> shooting for. So that we were constantly like, okay, we're eventually going to get, to the end and we're just going to stick to the end and just keep going and going and yeah it took some time but uh that was part of it yeah I, actually i found it neat when listening to your description of the process there because i've i've never known how a graphic novel comes together and i guess i kind of figured it started with the art because it's so detailed but it sounds like you you actually write the whole story first and then hash it down into the dialogue and the descriptive bits that remain right yeah i don't i don't know that there's any one right or wrong way to do it you know in in, in our case uh, uh, there are a lot of graphic novelists who are also artists so they are drawing and writing while they're going through it in our case we were approaching it strictly as we're writers we're going to find artists to illustrate our script. And that was really the approach that Ty Templeton described uh, in the classes we took was, okay, imagine you're hired to write comic book stories and you have to write several of them on a regular basis. How do you make, how do you approach it in a, in a systematic way, an efficient way, looking at story structure? And there are a lot of resources out there about story structure and things like that. He just had a particularly engaging really engaging way to present it in, in class. He's a very high energy, passionate kind of teacher. And uh, and that appealed to us. And there were a lot of interesting things about the, the medium that are also interesting. Like I, I've taken a lot of creative writing classes in school and that was my degree, fiction and poetry. And I've taken writing classes at Second City because I wanted to just try to expand my horizons for different like explore different types of writing, see how people teach it. And one of the interesting things I noticed about the medium for comics was the idea of simultaneity. <laughs> you can have a lot of narrative things happening at the same time, which you can also have in other mediums. But in comics, it was particularly interesting because you could have the visual element. You could have the captions in a panel describing narrative. You could have the character's uh, speech and you could have their thoughts. It wouldn't really make sense to have all four happening in one panel at the same time, but theoretically you could have four different streams of narrative all telling a different story basically happening at the same time, which was kind of an int one interesting thing that really appealed to me. And that was one thing I tried to work in. We both tried to work in, in, in the story, plus the fast moving element of it. Comics is interesting because I think the fundamental unit of storytelling is really the page and the panel. And you have some options for different types of panels in terms of the size of the panel, but also uh, within the panel, do you wanna have a close up, a medium or a wide shot? And what does each type of panel lend itself to uh, in terms of storytelling? So um, thinking about it in that way was just, was very interesting in terms of craft of storytelling. Not that, not that we did it 
perfectly, <laughs> but we, we worked really hard at it. And it was really, it was, that alone was just an interesting process to go through. That's been part of my pitch because I've been saying, I think our writing is pretty good, I, but I definitely think our artists, we lucked out uh, Chris yeah. Peterson. I haven't, we haven't mentioned his name yet, but Chris Peterson, uh, a Canadian, he was, I think, Edmonton-based. He's our artist. And it's interesting. This is also part of it. It's kind of like the, again, I'll use a movie example, screenplay to, to the finished product, finished film is how the writing directions, so to speak, get interpreted. So we would try and put in the, you know, part of the script writing process, as Alder mentioned, is you're writing maybe how you visualize where you put close-ups or wide shots or what what's in this panel versus that panel. And then the artist can sort of see that and go, oh, it makes sense to, you know, based on what I can fit, how I would draw this. Sometimes they might see something that you didn't see, like, oh, you know what would be good is if you put in a, a panel in between these two that sort of captured this action, because sometimes you, your brain almost gets ahead of you. You start thinking of movement, but you're, there is no movement. You have to sort of chop up the movements and capture them in different panels. So there's a component there that the artists can, you want to work closely with them insofar as you're working on the same visual wavelength. But there is an interesting sort of translation there where you see your interpretation of what you're writing and, and how it maybe ends up getting captured on the page. And I think our book had some sort of things where, yeah, you can do, as uh, as Oliver mentioned, you can have captions that are sort of incongruent with the vision, the actual visuals. And then you have visuals that could be, you know, layered on in, in different ways because you can do whatever. There's no, in a certain sense, there's no budget, right? There's no special effects. You can have all kinds of wild stuff, whatever you can imagine in the script because it, it's how you want to lay it on the page. So some of that is kind of freeing and sort of, sort of exciting to think about because it, it allows you to, you know, visualize mental states or take your narrative wherever you'd like to go. Um, and, and then it just so happens that in this case, because we went to, you know, basically through various countries and through various, you know, time periods and stuff, uh, it would allow us to sort of visualize all these different things that would have been a huge budget miniseries or something, you know, on TV or something. So it was kind of fun in that respect. Anyway. Now I'm even more intrigued. <laughs> yeah. Different time, I, I, time periods. <laughs> well, you know, there's a bit of there's a bit of flashbacks and there's a bit of different uh, stuff. You're learning about this family and stuff. I mean, I you know, gotta sell it. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you talked a little bit about um, you know the finding of an artist and and Chris Peterson ended up being the person who um, did your illustrations here. So I'm wondering a bit, what does that process look like? Did you already know Chris? How did you? So, so in this case, the first thing we knew we could do is, as Oliver mentioned, these classes we took, we were with, like in the Toronto scene, there are quite a few artists on at various levels, some doing their own books, some doing different things. Uh, you know, we've met some at conventions, we met them in classes. So the first, the first group we went to is some of the people we knew in classes. The challenge, of course, is... In this case, we knew we were, you know, we were ready to pay the artists the rate they needed to to make it work for them, and that's that's part of it. We had a bit of an advantage there that, you know, uh, we both got day jobs. We're both sort of like, okay, well, we're prepared to pay the money that's that's fair to do this. But obviously, time is a big problem because an artist, you know, unfortunately, it's it's tough, and it's and unlike writing is time consuming as well, but it's a less of a physical act. Right. And art, art, I mean, yeah, you could take a day to do a page and that's that's a day of sitting there and like, you know, really working your your hands and your brain. So that part of it, obviously, unfortunately, a lot of the artists we knew locally or in our friend group, you know, they, they just couldn't commit to as long a project. So originally we had met someone in that group and gone down a path, got about eight pages done. And then unfortunately, just that artist couldn't continue at the pace we wanted. So, I mean, 
it didn't work out. We met Chris actually through Twitter. Uh, actually, another friend of sort of in the group, uh, Adam Gorham, who is now I think a, a pretty well-known artist. He's done various covers and books and stuff for like Dark Horse and Valiant Comics and. I think he was doing some DC stuff recently, like like some some bigger name stuff. And he's very good. He happened to just retweet Chris being like, hey, I'm looking for work right now. Here's my art. Here's my website. And I looked at it and I said, well, this art's great. And, you know, emailed and said, can we talk? Let's work something out. And uh, once we sort of we negotiated back and forth and got, as Oliver mentioned, contracts signed and a, and a page rate agreed to and everything, we went from there. Unfortunately, same thing. Schedules conflicting, other things, you know, b- bigger work, more lucrative work, more prestigious work, let's say. So our, our book kind of got moved to the back burner quite a few times, but we stuck with it and, and uh, we came through there. But that's basically, uh, that's how basically how we met our artists. And, you know, it was someone that had a portfolio website and was looking for work and we we're like, let's see where we can get with this. Yeah. And, and since then, I've, I've done that another time. The book you mentioned at the top point, man, did the same thing, met a guy online on Twitter and uh, and Oliver's done it the other way. He's his other book, Seven Strange Tales. He did it through a friend of ours. Yeah. In terms of the process, Chris would basically send us sections. You know, I've done the next at what, however many pages. He would send us kind of a, an unfinished, like a sketched or close to being finished mm-hmm. version of that, which we would then kind of compare against the script and. We might point out, like uh, rare on rare occasions, we might go, "Oh, I think this character is actually supposed to be that character," or they should be looking in that direction, or whatever. Once it was a haircut, the haircut was the wrong haircut. Exactly. Had, yeah. He had changed yeah. the look of a character and then forgot to fix the. Cu- yeah. And of course, he does it all digitally, <laughs> so he can just go back in and like take the yeah. hair off and put new. It's it's pretty yeah. pretty amazing. But with the previous one that I did. It was seven strange stories involved five different local artists. So that was really a learning process leading up to this Genghis Khan project, because that previous one kind of grew out of just knowing these different artists and each of them saying, yeah, I'm willing to, to work with you on something. And some of them saying, no, you don't have to pay me. I'll do it. It's fine. But of course, that that never works out, you know, because <laughs> how do you get someone to commit serious hours even if it's a five-page story that's still a significant amount of time so it's it's your dream right it's not necessarily their dream Mm -hmm. exactly so they some of them were i mean they're all great great artists um and one or two of them were still intent on saying nope i said i'd do it for free i'm going to do it for free but the others were like sorry you know i said i would but i can't so then i eventually i hit on the idea like oh stupid me i should I should just make a contract and pay you like what's a decent page rate. And uh, that helped get the book kind of finished. And the process with each artist was also a little different. Some of them, like with Chris, it was extremely professional, you know, not that the others weren't, but it was extremely like efficient, professional. He would send us like a near finished sketch kind of draft of several pages with others. They might, at the beginning of the story, send me character sketches and say, what do you think of this? Is this how you want them to look? They might um, send pencil sketches instead and say, here's, I'm roughing out the page. You know, with one or two artists, I'd sent them a script where I'd broken it down by page and panel. And they, they disagreed, basically, with the panel breakdowns and said, actually, I think a better way to tell the story, you know, visually might be to use this kind of layout on this page, on this page. So we went back and forth that way. And uh, pretty much all the time, I trusted their 
vision of things because they're the artists, they're presenting it visually. I had my idea about what I think would be theoretically, this kind of shot should convey this kind of story element, but they're actually doing it. So they, in drawing it, they go, act mm, no, I think it works better to do it this way or to blend these panels or whatever. So that was a, a real learning experience leading up to the Genghis Khan project. And it helped kind of inform all of that. Chris yeah, we had a lot with, of trust. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say we had a lot of trust in Chris because yeah. he, as all, he was very efficient. And like when he got going on this stuff, you could trust that he had a he was able to pick up on what we were trying to do and then lay it out in a way that made sense. And it's always incredible to me because then you have to get the lettering done. And in this mm -hmm. case, the lettering was separate from the art. So he's got to draw it with our script in mind where the spaces are so that you can get all the captions of dialogue. In. And that's something, uh, first, I'm amazed that he can do it. And then second, we brought in a letterer, uh, Taylor Esposito, who is a real pro. And his work was really amazing because then he would be able to, just, you know, he knew exactly how to flow everything and, you know, it's funny, our, uh, we had another friend of ours who does the Toronto Comics Anthology, and one of his advice was, it seems easy lettering. It seems like a simple thing. You just, you know, once you have a page, you can just sort of plop it in. But he's like, actually, it makes a big difference if you get like a professional or a pro letterer and it's uh, yeah. that's someone that really knows what they're doing because it really does help move the eye around the page and it's not confusing, et cetera. And that's, again, another thing you have to think about when you're scripting because you have limited amount of space and like how much you can fit. You don't want to necessarily overburden any given page with a million word balloons or, or captions yeah. because it's, the point is you're supposed to be able to see like visual actions, you know, stuff that's, it should be, you know, the show don't tell thing becomes very, very literal because you're trying to show things with a graphic, with, a, with an image, not mm -hmm. through necessarily through dialogue. Yeah. And it's a series of still, it's essentially a series of still images uh, on the page that are meant to convey like a moving image. You don't have the luxury of a, of a moving image. You really, the mm -hmm. one saying that I've often heard is the actual movement happens in between the panels. It happens, what, like you don't see the actual movement. Mm -hmm. You see the start of an action and the finish of an action, but you can't show actual movement. The movement um, happens in the imagination. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is, again, it, it, it offers another interesting way of telling the story. You know, do you want to show which part of the action do you want to show and which is most important or relevant to the story? And, and then so, again, that, ju that juxtaposes with like movie writing or novel writing, because novel writing, like you have to, to make it clear on the page, everything, because everything that's going on is there. There's no other way to see it. So that, again, your brain has to think slightly differently. That's the form of writing I am much more comfortable in. <laughs> yeah, me, me too. I, I, I would have the tendency to write really lengthy descriptions in the panels, and I had to cut myself back. I would notice it, like, oh, I'm writing, like, three paragraphs describing what happens, and that's ridiculous. I got to cut back on that. Uh, um, I come at it from a screenwriter's perspective, so I'm trying to cut it everything down as much as possible, mm -hmm. like one, one, two sentences, because you're trying to capture... <laughs> In this frame, it's just this. That's it. That's all you want there. So you have to try. And, and the less you describe, to a certain extent, sometimes you're almost subtly guiding the artist that way. By, by describing very little, you're saying this is all that's there. That's all. You don't have to worry about the, the necessarily environment because we're actually trying to zoom in on this and this. Or we're trying to capture only this building in the landscape. Everything else can be out of focus, let's say. Like you can think yeah. about it that way. And there, there's a whole other school of thought, which we didn't use, which says, let the artist figure all that out. <laughs> you know, you might say, this is what happens on this page. And here's the dialogue. Now go, you know, <laughs> that's, what, that's what Stan Lee would do. Yeah, <laughs> he would just he would just say, Spider-Man does this and this. 
and and uh, here's the here's my my snappy dialogue, and then they have yeah. a fight, and then you know yeah. Jack Kirby would go and draw the fight for three pages, and that's it. That's how they solved it. And then they would just put the word balloons in there that he was yeah. saying while they fought. That's it. <laughs> so would you guys say? Um... So 2013 to 2020, most of it was process going back and forth with mm-hmm. artists and creation of the book, or most of it was story development. Well, after the couple of years of of uh, like story development, like basically as Oliver said, we finished a script in late 2014, and then spent I think maybe 2015 with a different artist, and then I would say in earnest we got really going in 2016 with Chris. And the pages started to come out. It just, at one point, we thought we'd be done by 2018. And then there were more delays. And then right near the end of 2019, we got everything finished. But then we didn't realize at the time how much work was going to go into actually putting the book together, like actually trying to get the book design. And in this, again, we, we met a very nice local book designer, uh, Sophia Pazlang. I hope I said her name right. I never actually pronounced her name out loud. And, but I met her on Twitter very randomly and and it just so happened that she was a book designer and she worked on she did both of my Genghis Khan and Point Man so that was the end that was basically 2019 going into 2020 and then right when we thought we might be able to get everything ready and done uh the pandemics the pandemic started so then uh, <laughs> then we sat on it for a few more months and then we were like okay well we can't wait forever we got the book finished let's yeah. let's just get it out there and then once we're on the street came together it was like okay that's the plan yeah. And I got to say, Daniel's really been the the driving force, keeping the project going. You know, we had, as he described, we had a lot of ups and downs. We had false starts. I think our cover artist at one point had a delay because his car caught on fire. Like we were like, Was okay, <laughs> artist got sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His car caught on fire. You know, like what's going on There's with the project? Life, life gets in the way, right? <laughs> the thing is, is that it, it's it, you're talking. We're talking about a lot of people that like they, they have like let's say full time job responsibilities. Like even like Chris is a professional artist, but he was at one point doing work for some other company. It's like that's the day job gig for him. So our luxury at by the later point was that we were just like sitting there going, "Any new pages? How you going? How's it doing? What's up? You know how we feeling?" And you know, and and that was it. I was just trying to encourage be positive because I didn't, because I wanted to get it to the end. I, wa- I felt like we had something that was, that was worth finishing. Uh, and, you know, I didn't want to get stuck. We didn't want to get stuck 60 pages in and just be like, Oh, well now we have to find someone else or we have to do something else. You know? So it was like, it, it felt good to just keep going with it. Even if it took a long time. Cause at the end of it, it was very nice to have the finished, but it was very satisfying to have the finished yeah. book in our hands at the end. So that yeah. was nice. I bet there was some champagne hat at the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we couldn't gather in person, unfortunately, oh, to celebrate. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had a, we, we had a fun time. I, I basically biked around. I you know, gave some copies to, to Oliver. Uh, Sophie lives in downtown Toronto, so I gave some to her. And then we sent the rest out to you know, our, our, the cover artist, a letter, or you know, sent them through the mail, just being like, we did it. We finished. And it was very fun to sort of – we had that, that Genghis Comics website had basically been sitting unused for a few years. Like We had this, the website built, but we didn't have anything – so it was very fun to like go back and now be like, Hey, an update after, you know, five years, <laughs> Hey, the book's yeah. out. Like, here we go. Like we're going to this now we're doing, we're selling it here. We got it on Amazon. We got it at word on the street. I, I've got some copies in a local bookstore here on Thunderstruck books that you could, you could pick up a hard copy there. So it's kind of fun to be like, you know, it's available. Uh, so yeah. that part of it was very satisfying. And for, from a, the writing perspective, it was interesting too, because we finished the script several years ago. And once, once the artist starts working on, the script it, it's 
it's basically impossible to go back and start changing stuff. You know, we might, we might tweak a word of dialogue here or there to clear something up, but really can't change anything. So we're locked into what we finished however many years ago. So it's, it's, and also because we've just been looking at sections of the story over the years, as Chris was finishing pages, I hadn't actually read the whole thing from start to finish until the book was done until I had it in my hands. And I was like, I wrote this. Like, <laughs> Holy crap. Wow. I've totally forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was I thinking? Well, well, it was good and bad. It was good and bad. Like, Oh, wow. I wrote this. And then also like, Oh yeah, I guess I wrote yeah. that a few years ago. Eh, it's okay. It's pretty good. Yeah. I'd maybe trim that a little bit or move it around yeah. or something, but eh, yeah. what are you going to do? Ultimately, it's like Daniel said, it's more important to finish. Like it's more important yeah. to actually see the project through to completion and not to think like, oh, if I were to do it today, I might change this or that or this or that. That's not as important. The most important thing is actually seeing a project through to completion. Yeah. It's so, it's so, uh, so much harder than you ever think it is, you know, with any project, you know, independent project or, or non it's, it's always more difficult and then more satisfying when you actually do see it through mm-hmm. to completion. This uh, is the one thing about comics that are more, it's, it's challenging because it is a very much a collaborative thing. If you're writing a, like, not to say, I mean, you're writing a novel or short stories. I mean, yes, you want to do research. You want to maybe talk to people, whatever, but the writing is your own, you go in your own headspace and you write it. And then when it's done, I mean, there's steps obviously that you have to do to, finish and publish it but you don't have to you're not looking to someone else to be like okay now make it into the thing it's supposed to be and that's that's the part that's the the leap you have to make so it's a it's a the extra step for sure and i i hear what you guys are saying too because i i put out a book earlier in may and i'd been working on it for almost 10 years and when i went through to do the final read i was like Oh, here's here's eighteen year old Chris. Here's twenty four year old Chris. Yeah, yeah. 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 but I mean, congratulations on getting it done. Like that's that's the most important thing, you know. Well, I think sometimes people think comics and graphic novels are easier, but in a novel, you can afford to burn through some sentences and paragraphs on descriptions. Um, Whereas in the graphic novel, you're telling the story with snippets of dialogue and and thought bubbles. That's a skill we greatly admire, but I I wonder, like, do you have trouble deciding what makes the cut? I think... In our case, what really helped, I mean, the short answer is yes. <laughs> the slightly longer answer is what really helped was uh, the going back and forth and focusing on uh, on structure and on breaking the story down, basically starting with the story, you know, like not, not jumping right into a script, uh, but really what's the story we want to tell? And, and even before that, who are the characters? You know, like, who are these people? What are their goals what are their flaws you know what do they want uh, all of those things and we really went back and forth in that sense having a, a writing partner is actually really helpful you know because you know when I do it on my own I get fixated on no it's got to be like this then I sort of dig holes for myself that I can't get out of most of the time <laughs> whereas having a somebody else you know we kind of bounce the ideas off each other and kind of talk it out we make references to other other stories that we like, you know, like it's kind of like in that movie where this happens, or it's kind of like in that story where this happens or, and that might spark another idea and go, Oh yeah, actually that's a good one. How about if we make it like this or make it like that? So really by focusing on, 
the story first. And even then, that, cha- that changed considerably, you know, from beginning to the finished product. But by doing that and then, and then really breaking it down by page and then by panel and then doing the stick figure versions and figuring out, you know, theoretically, what could this look like? What, what actually works on this page? That really helped us kind of weed out a lot of stuff. We still did find a lot of things. Even when we were in the screen, the scripting phase, we still went back and forth quite a lot. Like we might get to the very late stage of scripting, go, we totally forgot to do that thing. Or we forgot about that yeah. thing, that thread we laid earlier. We totally yeah. forgot about that later. How are we going to fix that without messing everything up? The same thing with revisions. When we passed it around to a couple of friends and they pointed out some things similar, like, okay, we kind of, yeah. how do we not undo everything we did? And sometimes we had to undo several things, but, um, but I think that really helped kind of self-editing along the way. But I, I'll just add that sometimes with comic writing, I feel like you have to use the limits to your advantage like every page costs money so you don't necessarily want to keep going bigger and bigger and bigger and then on top of that you only have so much space so it's like how how efficient can you be so you might write something out that's like however many words and then you just say do we need that do we need that do we need that and then eventually it's like oh that and that's sort of i mean that's how editing works anyway but you have an added incentive to like keep trying to trim it down because like visually it'll work better or, you know, just the concision always improves for the most part, improves the story. So it helps to kind of push you to think that way as opposed to just like, well, the book is as long as you want it to be because it's all just there on the page and it's a little, it's, it's animated a little differently. Yeah. And it's also sort of the, the age old issue of knowing when to say stop, right? Like <laughs> you, we could have gone back and forth, you know, this whole time, you know, we could be celebrating <laughs> that we have the script done at this point, but, yeah. but we had to at a certain point say, okay, really let's, this is, this is as good as it can be right now. Let's, let's just keep going. And I'd be happy with this version of this, of the story. Right. And, right. and let's move forward. And uh, so you guys brought up costs of um, the novel and, or sorry, the graphic novel and stuff. And so according to the NDP uh, book scan and Comicron, uh, sales of graphic novels in the U.S. have actually grown almost exponentially uh, from $350 million in 2003 to $1.1 billion in 2018. Uh, they're actually one of the highest growth forms of literature in the world right now. So I just wondered, from your perspective, what do you think it is about graphic novels that appeals to people in today's world? Well, I mean, I think the popularity of comics, like at the level they are now, comics in general, I think at the level they are now, they've become a huge industry. Uh, and part of, the, part of the reason for that is because the, the comic book films have become such a huge draw. And so there is this kind of push for every comic that maybe was already in existence or every future comic is looked at now as like a possible TV show or movie. So there's, it's become more of a lucrative uh, business. Uh, or business model, I should say. But I do think on the flip side of that is I think what people are realizing in graphic novels and again, comics in general, is that there's actually a lot more to them than than just Spider-Man, than just superheroes. And especially in sort of when we think about the graphic novel form, it's like the breadth of subject matter and uh, format and like art style and everything is just endless. And you can get a graphic novel about any sort of situation or character you can think of. 
So it's kind of, I think there's a sense of discovery there where people are like, oh, actually, did you know that this movie is based on a graphic novel? Really? Like it, they don't even, re- and it's, and you start to see that there's actually quite a, quite a range of, of stories there. And I think as a result, people are waking up to that. And I think, uh, yeah, the industry has exploded. Yeah. I kind of, kind of support the idea of comics more as a unique medium for storytelling, as opposed to a subset of an existing medium. Um, it has similarities to other forms of media, but it's a unique thing. So it's, it's not really a genre. It's like a medium unto itself. So there's a, is really unlimited types of stories that kind of appear in it. It'd be like talking about film, you know, it's a, it's a medium. And so there's any number of stories that can appear in that medium in terms of sales. Like Daniel said, I would suspect that the majority of those sales are probably related to the movies and TV shows, which is fine. I would love it if some of that extended towards independent comics. (laughs) That would be incredible. But I suspect most of it is related to the big budget movies and TV shows. It might also be related in some part to the availability, the increased availability of comics through, through platforms like Comixology. You can buy them like that and read them on including your phone. our book, including our book, including our book. Yep. <laughs> I think it, it might also have to do with, you know, it's a visual medium, but and it also lends itself to fairly quick reading. You know, you can read an entire book in a relatively short amount of time. So I think those things all might contribute to the increase in sales. I would love to see similar numbers you know, <laughs> talking about about the the sudden growth in sales for independent comics, specifically about road rallies from England to yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Well, well, we'll do what we can to help you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, we also, I think, there's also the idea that there are several generations now having grown up with comics. You know, like it's not recent. It's, you know, you could go back to the 40s, even before then, you know, the 20s and 30s. This 20th century, primarily 20th century medium, even though there's comics that go beyond, you know, before that. But really, I think you have several generations of people having grown up with comics and then maybe returning to it later in life. You know, they might have uh, they might have disposable income, you know, (laughs) and uh, or or they're hitting a point in life where they're looking back on what appealed to them when they were younger and trying to find that thrill, you know, again, Um, and then finding that there are comics that speak to them at any age. You know, it's not comics just for uh, uh, children or teenagers. There's comics that are aimed at people you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, and and older. Wow, I've learned so much from you guys. Today, um, I I admit I didn't know that much about uh, what it takes to put a a graphic novel together. So thank you so much for being here and explaining the process to us. Um, We could ask you dozens more questions, unfortunately. (laughs) We have a limited amount of time. So I will kind of try to wrap things up here. And could you tell us and our listeners where we can get a copy of Genghis Khan. So uh, I would encourage you guys to go to everyone to go to our website, GengisComics.com. That's sort of the landing site. That's got the link to Amazon, which is where I, I guess the key place we're selling it now. You can buy it and, and they'll ship it to you, et cetera. That's our, that's sort of our home base. Uh, all of our books are on Amazon. I mean, they're, they're the biggest operation. So that's where they're at. Uh, so yeah. So Genghis Comics is a place to go.com. And uh we hope to eventually be at conventions 
around the GTA once we're allowed to gather indoors with other people. And that will be the hope. You'll find us at a Genghis Comics table selling all the books we've made over the years. That's the hope. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, and like we mentioned, the electronic version you can get on Comixology and at a, at a few uh, local bookshops. You know where we've been able to, uh, where really Daniel's been able to, <laughs> to develop relationships. We're trying. We're trying. <laughs> you said Thunderstruck, right? Thunderstruck, yeah, on Bloor Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just between it's a tough. and Spadina. Yeah, it's a little tough to get. I mean, there's there's not a lot of the, the issue is again, it's a it's a challenge. There's not a lot of browsing traffic. There's not a lot of people just walking into stores. So the odds of them seeing your book on the shelf and being like, oh, that's because they're going there with something in mind or they're picking up something they've already ordered online. So. It's a bit of a challenge right now, but uh, like I said, hopefully we're not. We've we've got we've come this far over this long period of time. We're not done yet. We're gonna keep we're gonna keep going with it. So that yeah. that's not the problem. We'll keep going. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yes. definitely. Thanks very much. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. Daniel and Oliver are amazing, uh, so informative, and they know so much. <laughs> or so at glad. least they, they know so much more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, so much more than me. Like I said, I, I have to admit, I didn't know that much about what it takes to put together a graphic novel. And um, Daniel reached out to me at the virtual word on the street this, this year, and it just kind of came together. So I'm, I'm so glad that, you know, we still have these virtual events and everything to still bring us all together, right? <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. And Chatham too, right? Like having him on, and uh, it was great. Well, Chris, we have some amazing news from our members to tell our listeners this month. So we just heard him read from his debut novel. Uh, so this is fresh in our minds. But Chatham Thomas's debut novel, A Light from Below, was published through Friesen Press on October seventh makes the perfect stocking stuffer and is available for sale on both Amazon and Friesen Press. Awesome. Uh, and Michael Newman just received national recognition through the 2020 New York City Big Book Award for his debut novel, Between These Walls, which was recognized as a distinguished favorite in historical fiction. He also received a lightning bolt review in Publishers Weekly for the editor's pick of outstanding quality. And I have to add, Brandy, it deserves both of those. I read Michael's book back in May, and it was so moving and powerful and just full of emotion. So if you're interested in World War II at all, uh, the atrocities committed by Hitler and his party, definitely pick this one up. Yeah, I've been hearing so much about Michael's book. It's been getting a, a lot of uh, good reviews and, and awards. Um, well, lastly, Gordon K. Jones' novel, uh, Saving Tiberius, which we've mentioned on this show before, has been released as an ebook now through Chapters, Indigo, and Apple Books. So that was released on November 1st. So everybody go get their ebook copy. Yeah. 
congratulations, Gordon, Michael, and Chatham. Yes, congratulations. And our last thing to mention before we get going, we do have a winter giveaway coming up. And we're not going to give away too much information yet, but there may be a free membership in it for one of our lucky participants. So please stay tuned to our website, to our podcast, to our Twitter account, to all of our stuff. And we will be releasing the details of our special winter giveaway soon. Can't wait. And that, my friends, brings us to the end of our seventh episode of Words with Writers podcast. Thank you for being with us this month, and we will be back with you again in about a month to wish you all a very Merry Christmas. And happy holidays and all of that. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.